Hello, my name is Philip Kish, and I would like to welcome you to Best Alumni Podcast, where we interview alumni that have interesting projects, startups, research, or stories to share. The goal is to engage and motivate the alumni community, and of course, keep the best spirit alive. Before we start this episode, I want to encourage you to give your feedback and suggestions, especially if you have a story to share. You can write to us at cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. Once again, that's cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. Additionally, if you have experience in podcast creation or editing and want to lend a hand, get in touch with us. And now, it's my honor to introduce you to our guest for this episode. She was active in BEST from 2001 to 2006 and president of BEST in the 18th International Board. After her studies, she was recruited by Procter & Gamble, one of the leading consumer good companies and one of the corporate partners of BEST at that time. Through her 12 years and counting at P&G, she has gained a lot of experience analyzing supply chain data and is now working as data scientist and analytics lead. Her passion for data science goes beyond her day job as she is looking for ways of applying her skills for the good of society. Welcome, Nadina Pusyok, to the second episode of Best Alumni Podcast. Hi, Philip. It's uh, fun to be here. So, um, as we heard, you started your PNG career right after Best, as um, I think many Besties did, especially in those days. And uh, I never really understood what was so attractive. Uh, in, in that offer? What made you choose this path? Well, may, maybe my answer will disappoint you, but it was not so uh, so well thought at the time and not so much pursued either. So uh, when I was at the, my last GA, so the GA as a president of uh, the Board of Best, I met the Western European HR manager of PNG because they were sponsoring Best, so they were there. We chit-chatted a bit, she really liked me, and she kept now and then like every weeks she was sending me an email how are you are you maybe what are you planning to do when you graduate so she kept sort of sending two three emails mm. and trying to suggest that even if i don't know what i want to do i can come pass by do an office visit of png in romania or elsewhere uh, and then she somehow got in touch with uh, fari so uh, when she was Fari's already in the in, uh, uh, png uh, or yes. yeah Yes, so former president of BEST a few years before me who was working for PNG mm. in Brussels, so he's Belgian. And um, he called me. <laughs> and then he said, ah, you know, we have uh, all these openings in Brussels because PNG has this big technical center in Brussels that works for, um, that's technical innovation for a big region of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, we have a lot of these positions, no pressure, you can just come and for, for some interviews and we see how it goes. Um, so I was like, okay, well, since they insist, I'll just try. I went through the whole process. I came to the Brussels office, went to the interviews. At the time, I thought, well, I, it's just for me to get used to interviewing in a company, see how it is. They called me the same day. So after interviews, I got a phone call when I was walking around Brussels where they said, yeah, you're hired. We, we want to <laughs> hire you on the phone. They even told me the offer. And at that time, coming from Romania, I had no clue. It was a lot of money. But I didn't have any idea of how this translates to Belgian uh, mm-hmm. uh, cost of living. So anyway, I had the week to decide. And they told me, we move you to Belgium, don't worry, etc. So because I just had a week, <laughs> I think it was short enough that I didn't think about it too much. So I said, okay, I'll just try. Um, 
at the time I, so the first thing I did in PNG was not really a very good fit with my <laughs> background or my skills because I studied computer science. But you still um, stay there for 12 well, years. Well, because I found another group inside PNG that a very, very small group where I still work today, that it's a bit like a small consultant inside a big company that does what is today called data science and analytics, but, you know, statistics, math, modeling. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's really applied to very complex problems in a business environment. So I moved there and I realized that I really liked that. Mm -hmm. It was something I was looking for because when I finished university, I thought I don't want to be a programmer. I don't want to be the back end. And for mm -hmm. sure, I cannot do that. I, there is no option, but either you you code in the back end or you do business generally. But I discovered there's something in between. Uh, and that's what I really liked about it. So mm -hmm. using the coding and the math and the modeling. But then in the work I do, you also get to present the outcome of that modeling to executive so as a junior person you're exposed to very high up discussions strategic discussions higher people so there's a lot to learn and then if they take your recommendation it's also pretty cool feeling of achievement mm -hmm. um, and then you also see it happen i think that it was i realized was a big difference with let's say the typical consultancy because you're part of the same company so you stick around <clears throat> you see it happen And then people come back to you and say, hey, remember this project we worked on? Look, we opened a new factory or uh, this project that you, uh, this product that you see in the store. I know exactly how they were produced and I worked on that. So that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I remember back, day, back then in the days uh, we were constantly talking about uh, is best a corporation or should it be seen as a corporation? Uh, well, we can definitely say P&G uh, is a a big corporation yes. <laughs> it's a huge company so uh how does that uh fit in, into your personality because in you know you came from from being very involved active uh, um, you know you're an empathic person so how does that work in a corporate environment which i always imagined as a, you know quite closed and uh, structured and hierarchical and so on um well i think in png so first of all it's an american company and um What I find very specific is that it's very serious about what it calls its values, a bit like the whole best discussion with what our values, and then it becomes very serious about it. Mm -hmm. um, it is that way. So one of the, the things they seriously do is invest in the people, and it's not just a slogan. Uh, mo of course, it's not 100% that way because it's always dependent on individuals who apply the, the values and the, uh, the, the policies, but most of the time, The managers I was exposed to, or managers I had, and not just my direct manager, but everybody up to the vice president I report into, they really did care about your development as a person, as a professional. And the company invests a lot in training. And I've been to so many conferences that I chose to go to. Um, and I pitched and I got to go and training, formation, online courses, all these things. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't feel so hierarchical or so strict. Uh, I even felt like I had the space to develop my own style. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are expectations on delivering what you're supposed to deliver because it's a for-profit company. So at the end of the day, it's, it's measured. It's very clearly measured. But that sense, I didn't feel that it's very strict or very corporate. And on top of that, our group, so the group I work in, we are 50 people out of 100,000 in PNG. So a very small group, mm -hmm. um, which has its own little subculture. <laughs> So it's a bit of a 
corporate gigs or I don't know how to, maybe that's not the most appealing word, but um, it has a subculture of its own. So it even supersedes the whole thing I explained. But it's very chilled and nobody's very formal and there's no hire. And how many ex-best people are in that group? Uh, today, it's just me and Gigi. Okay. <laughs> we work in the same group, which is the coin. I mean, the, the chances of that happening were pretty small. Uh, so two, but it's we are 50, so it's not... Mm-hmm. It's a good percentage. <laughs> Maybe this is a bit of a unfair question, but uh, why is Best uh, not anymore partnered with ING? Mm-hmm. Or does well, I, you not see the value in Best is anymore? No, I don't think it's like that. I think, uh, and I, I also wonder myself the same thing. Mm-hmm. I know why, because uh, over the years, I, I sometimes went to Best events as a PNG person, and I went there with other PNG people who did not know anything about Best. And I think it's two reasons. I think, first of all, <clears throat> some of the events that PNG participated to were not super well organized from a corporate standpoint. Mm-hmm. Where, and I, I understand that it's a student organization, but most PNG people don't really go to events organized by students. Mm-hmm. They go to other corporations organizing events. So the standards are different, and you compare it by the same standards. Um, forgetting that maybe you paid way less than what you would pay and people, maybe you don't even know with such a big company you don't really know how much was paid in that sense that was a bit of a hiccup a, a few events in a few, a few events this happened and then if you have the let's say the uh, lack of luck that some of the PNG people that come are really the very assertive very alpha male type got annoyed with the wasting their time then that world Word travels a bit. And second, I think the offer, and I have given this feedback every time I go to the round table, the offer that Best has today, so in the last few years, is not current anymore with what happens in the, in the labor market and in the, in the corporate world. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know how much into detail you want to go with this. No, no, I think uh, there is another place for discussing these things, exactly. but I was just, just wondering. Yeah. But let's back, get back to your, your main business. So you say today you would call yourself a data scientist. What does that mean? How does your day or maybe a week uh, look like? What do you do? Well, what is, first, what this means, I think there's a huge industry controversy on what data scientist means. So I'm not yes. even going to try to attempt to solve it. I'll just say that even before we, uh, inside the company, rebranded to use this name just to be aligned with um, industry uh, denominations, we were doing the same thing. So how a day looks, it's not so much a day as in a few weeks or a few months because mm-hmm. you would work for project-based. So your year or your years would be split in a number of projects. And a project is really like a small consultancy project where you work three, four, six months, or maybe even more if it's complex on a specific uh, question that you're trying to solve, a specific problem that the company has that you try to solve. So then your day looks as you make it. So mm-hmm. you have it's a bit like, uh, my, the best analogy is maybe if you do a PhD and you have a number of years and you have to figure out yourself how you split your time, knowing that yeah. at the end you have to deliver something and there's some in-between presentations, checks that you need to do. So it's a bit that way, the day you make it yourself, my specific day. So it's also we have different profiles in the team. Some people are uh, don't need a daily routine, so they would work a lot one day and a bit less in another. I'm more of a routine person myself, so mm-hmm. I prefer, I actually 
would find it more disturbing if that happened. So I choose myself to have more or less the same working time and split my week and my days according to what I need to achieve. But most of the time is spent collecting data, processing it, looking at exploring it a bit to try to get familiar with what is in there. And then narrowing that down to very specific questions that you can answer. And then whether you already know how to model it or not, you have to find a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've done that and you know pretty well what should happen to solve that question, um, there's a lot of multifunctional work involved. So then you bring that work and you have to find interesting ways to tell stories with your data and with visualizations to convince finance people and executives and uh, are like research and development people, engineering and so on, mm-hmm. to go with that recommendation so that then the whole team goes to the vice president, president who has to sign it off uh, to get it approved. Mm-hmm. So it depends a bit on which stage you are in the project. Yeah, I assume this fun uh, multicultural part comes at the end when you actually have some results. Well, it also comes a lot in the beginning. Yeah. because when you, when you gather data from others, yeah. Or when you even try to just decide what the problem is you're trying mm-hmm. to solve. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. may sound very obvious. That, or Also, I had the impression before I started doing this that somebody comes to you and the problem is clear. But often they would come to you and they will tell you something. But as you dig deeper, it turns out it's a different problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because often people would mix what they're trying to solve with how to solve it already. Mm-hmm. So if we take the whole uh, uh, workflow from figuring out uh, the question, gathering the data, and then I assume there is some data cleanup that needs to happen and processing. Quite a lot. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's actually where my question is. Which of these parts is the longest and which one is the most exciting? And uh, hopefully those would be the same, but I don't think it is necessarily in the practice. I think it, <laughs> I can tell you what should be the split, and I will tell you what happens often if, you are less experienced, so don't feel like taking the effort. Uh, normally, the longest part should be what we call specifying and designing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So not even starting to do anything on your computer, but really on paper, if you want, pen and paper. Try to figure out, okay, this is the problem I'm trying to solve. Then these are the kind of calculations I need to do to get there. These are the inputs I need. Do I have them or not? Where can I get the data? How should it be transformed? Mm-hmm. Uh, that should take the most time. Now, what happens in reality, because I think most people who do this kind of work are not necessarily the most strongest project managers, um, you will go in and look at the data and start doing something with it and try to get some pieces and you may not have it all. So in reality, you may spend more time doing that, which may be a bit of loss of time at some point uh, versus having first done the thinking and then doing this part. But in reality, it's not so, well, PNG is a big company. So a lot of the, I mean, it's not, super clean, but it's not super messy either, the data. Mm. Uh, and we have big data platforms, so you can pull a lot of it real time. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I would say maybe 30, 30, 30 between data processing and uh, like 30% data processing and manipulation and cleanup, modeling, and then working on your story and presenting. Mm-hmm. What I find most exciting uh, is the modeling part when it works and then I feel like a big achievement, but I wouldn't like doing only that. I also like to crack the story for the executives and see that it works, that you manage to influence a very big decision with your data story. Yeah, some kind of approval. 
It's more like a pitching, but in a, in a different <laughs> way. Mm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And um, you mentioned this already earlier that uh, you've been doing this for a long time and the data science label is uh, kind of new. And I've mm -hmm. seen this around everywhere and that you know, data science positions are, are super trendy now and so on. So uh, what do you think is the reason why this, in my opinion as well, uh, old uh, skill and old, uh, uh, yeah, old approach is becoming trendy now? Well, there's an obvious reason that technology has evolved and you all, all of a sudden have access to more data. And by you, I mean any random person working somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so that, that changed. And because this happened, I mean, you, you feel compelled to do something with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that um, created some kind of demand that a lot of companies jumped on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies are really good at selling things. Mm -hmm. So you jump on this demand and you start creating amazing pitches to sell data science or whatever. Yeah. It, it so happened that it became this word. It could have been something else. So it was, was there something in also forming uh, this word uh, that the old words that were used, data analyst or, or whatever, were, were had bad connotation and, and, and the market needed a new word? Uh, or, or why did this happen? <laughs> I think this goes probably in another domain than my speciality mm -hmm. in terms of culture. How does culture spread and how do memes spread? Yeah. Um, I have a gut feel that some things were better than others, but I don't know why. I, I think this is a very vast field of study of why some things spread virally and some don't. Mm. I think it just sounds better because you have the word science in there and it gives the idea that you're, it's a more elevated word than if you say um, mm. analyst. Mm. Okay, so one thing was that there is more data. Do you think there was something uh, yeah, else? The other thing is because technology is evolving a lot, and I mean, this is purely my opinion, I'm not saying that I have done extensive yeah, yeah. research for <laughs> this. Um, the people who are executive or decision makers in any companies today are a different generation. They're a bit older. I don't know, like right now would be what, 45 and 65, let's say, between those ages. So they were a bit behind, let's say, with all this new development on technology because a lot of them have not studied tech in their studies and at the time it was split it was either tech or something else Business. today it's a bit more mixed mm. or i don't know even engineering would be very much about process yeah. not much about coding and, and data so they were a bit behind they felt like they have to get on this bandwagon <laughs> because it you know it's going places and i think that made them more vulnerable to these sales pitches and all the buzz stuff um, it's a bit like you know you want to be uh, in touch or in trend, but because you don't have enough background, it's hard for you to separate the the noise from the actual information. Mm -hmm. Speaking of traditions, I would assume that this area has been mainly male dominated for for decades. And how is it? How does it look today? And how how it is for you as a woman to work in in, in this field? I think it's improving, but it's still a big discrepancy in terms of gender representation. And not just gender, but I'll, I know more about gender because it directly affects me. But I think it's not just gender, but also other types of, or not other types, minorities as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's still the case today. Uh, and at first, like a few years ago, if you asked me, I would have said, 
well, I mean, it's underrepresented, but I don't feel there's any problem because I didn't have any problem in getting somewhere and doing what I want and achieving things. But in the last few years, I realized that even this, even though this may have happened, it happened with a lot more effort from my side versus a, a male counterpart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this because, uh, to, to give very simple examples that I only realized later, uh, if you go to, let's say, uh, uh, you, you travel for, for a business event uh, from, with different people from different parts of the world in the headquarters of the company in Cincinnati, uh, you stay there, there's events during the day and so on. In the evenings, uh, let's say you're a group of 20, out of the 20, you're three women. Well, what can happen is that one of the guys will go for beers, let's say one of the more senior people, um, and would easily invite other guys, more junior people, to join him for beers, and they would discuss very strategic things, very insightful. They would never invite me because it's just awkward. Wait, don't, never... don't they know you can drink quite well as well? Well, yeah, I should have put that in my CV. Uh, no, I think it's just that it's more awkward because it's a senior guy. And even like one-on-one, I would never, it would never happen that he would invite me one-on-one for drinks to discuss things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would not be a problem if it were 50-50 because the opposite is also true. A senior yeah. female executive would not invite a junior guy potentially. Um, but because it's not 50-50, it's not equally represented, you don't have these chances. So then that information, that strategic insight, that sort of informal connection, you don't have or you have less. So you have to work more. It's a very simple example. Yeah. yeah. How, how do we fight against this? Because, I mean, even best being a technical student organization, there was, yeah. you know, representation was not equal because there are not as many uh, women studying technology. So Yeah. So part of the problem is it starts much earlier. How do you encourage little girls and or you change the, the way or the society puts pressure or peer pressure on little girls versus little boys? <laughs> but that's not something, I mean, at, at least you can do it with your own kids, but at the scale, at scale is a bit difficult. But I think also what can also change is if you change the demand. So inside a company, if you um, try to show that other models are also possible, or at least to expose biases, because I don't think it happens intentionally, not mm-hmm. at all. Even I, in the beginning, I was biased, and I'll be very honest, if I interview people for a job, I was biased to think that the guy is more technically savvy. Mm-hmm. And there is no research. Like, if you look at the research, there is no evidence that this is the case from a male-female point of view, from a brain wiring perspective. I even know some research that proves uh, yeah, pops, the opposite. Other, other things, yeah. yeah. But so there is no, no reason to think that there's any uh, precondition that would generate this so it's all society driven so expose the biases be more aware first be more aware of them yourself as a woman when you say no i don't think there's a problem because i got there look closer because maybe it's not true Uh, second expose the biases in of course respectful way but trying to talk about them with other people and three for me it's driving a different approach to things a more empathic approach to how you lead how you drive projects how you bring a team together. Um, in my experience, a lot of the leadership style that worked in the past was, let's say, more the directional style or the <laughs> let's go, you do this, you do that, we go as a bit of a um, crisis mode or, or yeah, <laughs> directional mm-hmm. leadership. Other styles can also work, especially today when it's not crisis management and when you're not in a war, in a life uh, crucial setup. 
other more um, inclusive, consensual, empathic styles could also work. And once you do that, and you do that consistently and it works, I think it opens the, the eyes of people that different approaches can work, where then the gender balance matters a lot for you to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's necessarily gender, and I say this, I think it's a specific approach to life. It is more, um, let's say, more visible in one gender than another, but I don't think it's, yeah. there's a spectrum. So there can be men who have a more female style of behaving and women who have a more male, and by that I mean very societal stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Do you think such a change in, uh, in, uh, in big corporations can come from below or it needs to come from above? But I think both matter. I think if you squeeze rope from the top and from the bottom, it will work out. But mm-hmm. it's, it's harder from the bottom because there's, no matter what people say, no matter how open uh, the organization is, you still feel there is still an informal level of importance or authority. Mm-hmm. Also a formal one, but also an informal one. So you feel less likely to speak up or, or push new things. I think the, if I look at millennials, that's less true. I think they're more open to, to push and challenge and are less afraid of, um, or the cost is le- lower because they can just go and do something else somewhere else. So I think it's changing, but I think it should also start from the top. Okay. Speaking of leadership and... Looking back a bit more at your... Uh career a few years back you took part in in an aspen young leaders program so tell us more about what that is what is it that you got from it and what was the most interesting person maybe you met there or mm-hmm. so the the aspen young leaders program is one of the programs of the aspen institute which is a global institute that started in the us for well so the official slogan is for a fair um, or the right society the good society mm-hmm. Um, it was created somewhere in the 50s, I think. So right after the Second World War, um, some um, professors from the University of Denver, who were close to Aspen, Aspen is close to Denver, decided that maybe they could try to do something to instill or bring back the values of a good society to the people who make decisions so that such a catastrophe doesn't happen again. So they started with creating this kind of courses where they brought, or or programs where they bought through a, a whole year, they brought a bunch of people that were already doing or, or proven leadership in their own domain of expertise, brought them together and uh, approached what is called a Socratic debate approach, where you discuss on very meaningful texts or, or literature or opinions of uh, big thinkers. And you try to somehow by discussing agree some consensus on what should be uh, the, a good society. Mm-hmm. And that happened throughout the years. In the in time, they also expanded to different areas of the world. And there is an Aspen Institute chapter in Romania for Southeast Europe. And they do this Aspen Young Leaders program every year where uh, you have to be nominated by someone who's connected to the institute. You apply, blah, blah, blah. If you get selected, uh, you spend a year in a program with 25 people who are professionals and leaders in their respective domains. Mm-hmm. It can be lawyers, economists, artists, activists, engineers, business people, and so on. Uh, and you do exactly what I said. So what happened is I applied for, for this program in Romania. I got selected. And the program is uh, for a whole year, you have four modules where you meet together for a week in an isolated place. And you do this kind of Socratic debates. 
but it's also combined with a lot of um, uh, physical and psychological um, pressure so that it puts you under strain. So there's a lot of things you have to do that it's a bit like a, uh, I understand it's modeled after the West Point, so the military academy in the US to really put you under a lot of stress so that you either break and you realize what your weaknesses are or you, it strengthens you, strengthens you more. Anyways. So were you sleeping in the tent and uh, running uh, 20 kilometers every day? or Not as extreme as that, but not far. Okay. Uh, in different, uh, in different uh, natural environments, mm-hmm. um, different times and different places. Um, so then this happens, and but as a preparation, so in between these modules, you, have to, you are given literature to read, and it's a classic text of all kinds of domains, from um, justice or law to economics to religion. So we read all kinds of extracts of famous economic books or the Quran, the Bible, God is a delusion, so all these kind of things. And also try to mix the group in such a way that you have a diversity. So in our case, Southeast Europe includes a lot of the Balkans. So then you have, by default, mix of religion, mix of mm-hmm. different cultures. Um, also, it, they try to mix the domains so that you have people from different domains. So the discussions are very interesting. We talk gender balance, we talk minority. So a lot of things that were interesting, including, and I think for Balkan audiences, this would be relevant, LGBT and also um, Roma minority rights. And at the first, I thought, wow, this is okay, it's interesting, I'll read it and talk, won't be an issue. Um, some of the discussions were very heated, and it gave me the, it, it made me realize that even these people that I would think are my peers, so we would end up thinking the same way. In fact, we had disagreements on mm-hmm. what I thought is very fundamental things. But it was good <laughs> because it exposes you to what is real society. And at the end, I would say after the 25, I think five had quite some, um, let's say, difficult moments where uh, they realized they have to work on themselves. Uh, around 15 were, you know, went through it, got some learnings and so on. And the other five really took it further, I would say, in the sense of you realize what it takes to change society and how is leadership in society different than leadership in your domain of expertise. Um, and out of that, a few projects or a few ideas were created and I really got connected with a few of the people, I would say three, four, very strongly. So I made new friends in completely different domains. In which category would you put yourself? The last one. It was very clear because even we had, and it's interesting to see because I didn't realize this, that um, people can so easily, not easily, but that people can snap in certain situations where for me it's like, okay, but it's just a fictitious situation and okay, I mean, it's not, for real, it's not a real life in that scenario. It's just mm-hmm. a game. Um, but of course, it comes with underlying um, journeys and challenges, and knowing or not knowing who you are or what you're after. I realized this, so it was interesting. That way. Um, but for me, I, I joined it with a very specific reason or goal. I wanted to, so at some point, two, three years ago, I decided that I'm pretty good where I am professionally, but I like to do something with my skills for good. Let's say. And especially back in Romania, because I don't live there anymore, but I'm still quite connected. And I think I could have a better impact there than in Belgium. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I really didn't know how to. So I had this idea of using data and analytics for helping city halls do a better job in how they plan and design their transportation networks. 
Um, but I didn't know how to enter because I have no connection with, you know, public policy or city hall, definitely not back in Maine. So I once mentioned this to a friend of mine who's a journalist back home, mm-hmm. who used to live in the U.S. for quite a lot. And he suggests he had just done this program a few years back and has helped him create the network and um, a professional network and be more connected. And he suggested this, he nominated me and that's how I got in. So my goal initially was very clear to create a network and make this idea happen. But along the way, I found out more about myself. I got new friends and it's a fantastic, it's a bit like best for grownups <laughs> in the sense of um, it goes a, a level further. It goes really beyond and makes you think about not yourself and your values and what you want to do. But once you have that clear, what is society? How do you manage? How do you change it? What are techniques and how do you switch values and what can you do as an individual to then move um, society or make it shift in a specific direction? Mm. And then from that, you started this project called City Fabric Romania, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. So how did that came to life and, and what is it? Tell us a bit more. Um, <laughs> so part of the expectations of the program is that at the end, or the last module is a lot focused on really um, doing something for society. And we all had to find a project or a cause to do something for. And I pitched to some of the people there the idea of doing something together around this idea I mentioned. Uh, they were very excited. Um, there were people mostly focused on that they have already been involved in just like uh, act, active kind of NGO work and mm-hmm. trying to influence society or sustainability, so related domains. Um, so we, we got together and we sort of, it was a bit of a painful process because it's people you don't really know. And I realized for the first time that I have been evolving in bubbles like BEST and PNG, where there's a clear structure, people are organized in a certain way, the expectations are clear, everybody delivers more or less to that or works in that way. But with people who come from different domains and different backgrounds, there is no very little common ground except the idea and the excitement. So the working was challenging. Also because then I came back to Belgium, and there is a distance, even if it's not so far. And they were all four of them in Bucharest. So that was a bit challenging. Um, it's also, <laughs> it was for me interesting to see the difference between, or to re-see the difference between Western Europe and, I'll say Romania so that I don't offend anybody. Uh, <laughs> where the, the working styles are different. A lot happens more informally and more over mm-hmm. the phone than really offline or, or structured in emails and the excitement also is driven that way and i say this not just for the small team but also for everybody else we got in contact with. so long story short we created this thing we approached um, or we had this idea we started approaching both um, public administration and big companies to partner with i think we had a very in the end with all the challenges we came up with a very strong let's call it business plan or, or initiative plan we had a lot of good connections with very big companies that have data that today is not used for the purpose of city planning, but for their own commercial purposes that were willing to, you know, just do some partnership with us where it would help their image and, and maybe create demand from the city hall. But although everyone was very excited, <laughs> people wanted to get into this, to get from there to actually making things happen, it was very, I don't know, for, for a number of reasons, it's very difficult. Um, so in the end, where we are is that one of the, the guys in the team created an NGO. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we discussed a bit whether we want to create a, a company or an NGO and what's, what are the pros and cons. 
I was surprised to see how many, how much help we got pro bono from professionals that were excited about doing something for Romania. So we got a very famous lawyer to help us pro bono to decide on what's the right format. Um, we got people to help, like one of my friends to help with the design and the branding and um, one of the guys with the website that did set it up. So I was impressed with that energy, which doesn't happen in my view in Western Europe as easily. Mm-hmm. But I was disappointed a bit with the realization of going from excitement ideas to do the work to follow up and make it happen. And I think it's also because when we tried, for example, Bucharest City Hall, it's almost impossible to penetrate uh, because of corruption, because of uh, lack of know-how. Although the people who do the work were excited and understood, the people who had to take the decisions didn't care. Yeah, sounds familiar. And we would have had to get involved politically to make mm-hmm. it to make them care. Mm. Um, so that's a bit where we were, where we are today. So I'm not sure <laughs> we were discussing whether to keep it low for now and contribute with what the ideas we have and the passion we have on very specific programs and events that other people organize. So if there's events or conferences where we can step in and contribute with a small piece, we will do it. Uh, while in the meantime, maybe reorientate towards other cities in Romania, more from the Northwest that are a bit less corrupt and more open to this kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Like Cluj, for instance. Yes. <laughs> Is this your biggest next project or do you have some other uh, projects in mind? What's what's on your horizon? No, I, I guess not because after this experience, I, I learned a lot. It also was very interesting uh, because to do this, I took a sabbatical last year and spent quite some time back in Romania. So mm-hmm. it taught me a lot also personally about identity and where do I really want to be and also destroyed some of the myths of I would love to go back home. <laughs> I, I can explain why. Uh, it's very personal. Uh, it's not general, generic for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided that um, I'll, uh, with this kind of work, I'm willing to do something, but I'll contribute with very st- within frameworks that are already done and defined. So I'll come in and I will even look in Belgium and the Netherlands with such kind of programs where I can come in and contribute with the skills I have, like data modeling analytics in stuff that's already there. Mm-hmm. And this is still valuable because most of the people who do this are um, architects, urban planners, so not really a tech person. So I think it could, could work out this way. But that's not a big project. But um, it, it, it could be. It could grow. Well, the, yeah, it could. So I'll, I'll do this way. Mm-hmm. Professionally, though, I... Well, in the last uh, so 12 years since I work, I've been banking on what I learned before, uh, both in school and, and doing things in terms of uh, professional skills, technical professional skills. I'm starting to run behind all the machine learning revolution. Uh, so one of the personal development projects I have is to get back current with everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean machine learning techniques, but I mean more of the... Um, how to scale that in an enterprise, how does that look like, what kind of tools to use, what kind of inspiration can one draw from Google or Netflix to then bring it to a fast-moving consumer goods company. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way. And for that, it requires time and, and the right involvement in the right thing. Mm. So if you could uh, apply data science today to anything in this world or beyond, what would that be? What would you find most interesting? I have a, like, I mean, I already said, I have a strong passion for city planning. 
So that's still the biggest one you would uh, want. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I say this because, first of all, I see the world becoming more and more less of a country structure, but a lot more happening around cities. Mm-hmm. So the the unit becomes much much more the city. And because I think it explodes so fast and the tools and the approaches are not yet updated with all the technological development. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of both potential to contribute, but also a lot of value it could bring to the people living there. Can you expand a bit more on this, uh, the unit becomes a con- uh, city versus the country? Because my uh, feeling is that, you know, we went from tribes to cities to city-states to, to countries, so, and now we're going to globalization. Is this a step back or is just a different focus? How, how do you see this? Well, I, th- I mean, it's my impression from everything I see. I think it is because it's becoming too global. It creates a lot of mm, discomfort. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why there's a lot of divide today in the world between the very progressive and the more quite traditional because of that. I think it's so disrupting versus how we've been wired, coming back to uh, your thing from the tribe to the city and so on, that I, I think, I mean, I see it already happening, that at least around me, uh, when I look in Brussels, people become much more local and community-oriented in everything, from how you live to how you consume food. And I think that's a counter-reaction to the globalization. I don't know that it will work with everybody. It's maybe my very fancy bubble of people that want to go back to being local, whereas the, probably the farmers and people in the rural areas still want to become more in modern or industrialized. I don't know, because I don't have sufficient Mm. Uh, direct contact with part of society but I see at least around me that kind of reaction so becoming more local mm-hmm. focusing more on little spaces little di- diameters of life well from, mm-hmm. at least from a sustainability perspective I see that as a good step yeah and I think that also plays a role or one of the reasons why this happens mm. okay Normally, in ABC, where, where this podcast kind of originates in, we like to share a lot about uh, resources uh, we find interesting. So have you read anything, uh, any book or any pod- uh, listen to any podcast or, or follow any blog that you would recommend lately? Actually, I actually started um, listening to a lot more podcasts lately, but very much connected to data science or professional. Oh, it doesn't matter. So... Yeah, I listened to a podcast called Data Frame from the Data Camp. So it's this Belgian startup that does online courses. They have a lot of interviews with people from different companies that uh, talk about how they do it and what are the their advice, what is their advice, techniques, and also how to structure organizations around it and so on. I find it very good. Mm-hmm. This, I would say, is the main one I like in terms of data science, data approaches. I also... On the other side of how to work and how to manage your life, I listen to two podcasts that are really good. Uh, one is by Adam Grant called Work Life. There's this guy who wrote all these books, originals and give and take. I like him a lot. I'm a big fan. He talks, he's a sociologist and he looks at, um, he does research to understand what brings innovation, what makes people innovative and how to best manage work life. And this Work Life podcast is really, really good. And the other one is, the Thrive Global by Ariana Huffington, the lady of the Huffington <laughs> Post that she doesn't own anymore. Yeah. Um, because she created this company that helps big corporations become more involved in their employees' welfare. So really, it's a whole program that offers trainings to big corporations on how to become 
to, to go beyond just being responsible for the salary and the professional development to really teaching people to be better people. Uh, and her podcast, Thrive Global, just invites very famous people. And she talks to them about how do they interact with devices, how do they relax, how do they disconnect, how, how do they manage or not to have a balanced life. It's very interesting to see. It's sim as simple as, you know, use an alarm clock, not your phone as an alarm so that you don't check it when you go to sleep and when you wake up. A lot of things like this, which sound simple, but in, can really change your life or improve the quality of your life. So that's in terms of podcasts. Mm. For books, I read a lot of books. Like right now, I'm reading Michelle Obama's Becoming. <laughs> Top it's really yeah. good. It's really good. Yeah. Well, I mean, if one is a fan of the Obamas, it's a really good book. <laughs> uh, but also because she talks about topics that otherwise, as a woman in a position of a lot of exposure, you maybe don't talk about. So it's also relevant. Like uh, how she had a lot of miscarriages and she was not able to have children and how that impacted um, her morale and her relationship with Barack Obama and how she was jealous and envious of him that he could just sit there and wait and not feel like he's failing or um, yeah, that not, not, not so much of the visceral pain and, and so on. It's mm -hmm. just an example. I find it good. And one of the books I read recently is called The Master Algorithm. It's one of the best books I read about what comes after machine learning. You know, is, possible, is it possible to have an algorithm for everything in the world to answer every problem? It's a philosophical book of it. Of course, mm. it's not possible today, but it explores from the existing um, algorithm schools what is the most likely to go that way and, in fact, how to combine all of them to then get to this master algorithm. It's really good. Sounds really interesting. Okay, and... Um as a concluding thought, any advice for uh, best community in general, best alumni community? No, no well, no, no may maybe one that um, um, I think we don't, or from my experience, we don't do it enough. I think there would be a lot of value to reconnect back with best people that you know professionally. I think we're a very powerful network professionally that could achieve a lot by just connecting and doing things together. I don't think it happens enough because there's no... Um, natural, um, let's say, forum that brings all these people together ongoing. But don't hesitate <laughs> if you have, if you're doing something and you could use help or external perspective or other ideas to, I don't know, check your LinkedIn, check your best <laughs> uh, people mm -hmm. and see where they are and just reach out to them. Because I've done this in the past few years and it's amazing what kind of perspectives it opens and how, how I managed to connect some things and, and it really helped me improve some of the ideas I had and the things I was doing. Yeah. Definitely a need we've, we've seen also when we did ABC, people really feel like there is a potential uh, just somebody needs to uh, do something about it. And what about you? Anything you would like to ask from the community? Well, first of all, I think it's a great initiative what you're doing. So I, I think it's a great idea. Keep, keep doing it, this whole podcast to keep the... ABC connecting spirit alive. Yeah, the second, I don't know if there are other people who listen to this and are interested in city planning and using data for improving urban life. It would be great to get in touch. Like I said, who knows where this takes us? Yeah. Um, yeah. Ah, and one more thing, if people are interested to apply to this Aspen Young Leaders program, let me know and I can show them in what to do or give more details. Uh, it's a program for people between 25 and 35 years. Okay, so I have one more year left. <laughs> yeah, so let me know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I will
Well, we're at the end of another episode. Thank you, Nadina, for joining and sharing your experience and passion with the community. I hope you will get some interesting connections from this and I wish you good luck in all of your current and future projects. Yeah, thank you, Philip. In the description of this episode and on the alumnibusinesscamp.net website, you can find the links to the projects and resources that were mentioned throughout the interview. Don't forget to subscribe to Best Alumni Podcast in your favorite podcast app. Leave us comments on Facebook or Twitter or write to us at cast at alumnibusinesscamp.net. On the next episode, I will be talking with Robert Chetty on creating a business inspired by experience from Best, starting a company in Estonia and running it remotely. Until then, hear you somewhere in Europe.